Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. One of the federal government's top cyber leaders is stepping down this week. Army General Paul Nakasone has led Cyber Command and the National Security Agency since 2018. One of the top things on his mind as he prepares to retire is the future of Cybercom. For more on that, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me. Justin, thanks for being here. Hey, Eric, how are we doing? All right, all right. So I guess the better question is, how is Paul Nakasone doing? What has General Nakasone been saying about the future of the command he led for the last six years? Yeah, Eric, in a few words, uh, he wants to have a bold move forward at U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, General Nakasone, uh, you know, has led the command since May 2018 when it its forces actually kind of reached what's called full operational capability. And and now they're thinking about something called Cybercom 2.0 uh, for this you know, about 15-year-old command. Nakasone, uh, you know, he's stepping down uh, this week, and he briefed a small group of reporters up at Fort Meade on Tuesday. Uh, we weren't allowed to bring in any electronics, so I don't have any audio from that briefing. But what I do have are uh, notes on what uh, Nakasone talked about. One of the big things is this idea of the changes that are needed at Cyber Command to kind of position it well for the future. And Congress has actually tasked DOD with thinking hard about that uh, and doing a study on the responsibilities of the military services for actually providing forces to Cybercom. And that study is due to Congress on June 1st, and it's uh, well underway. And that's uh, something that Nakasone has really been thinking hard about as he uh, prepares to leave. Glad those notes weren't blacked out on your way off the campus. What is the study going to consider? Yeah, uh, Nakasone says he's just approved uh, you know, a cross-functional team to go out and start looking at some specific issues. One of those are how, do, how does Cybercom use its authorities differently? How do they do training differently? How do they think about personnel differently in the future? One of the major issues he highlighted is the rotation of military forces in and out of Cybercom. Uh, this is how it works at, you know, a, a lot of the combatant commands is forces are assigned there temporarily for a few years, and then they rotate out to another assignment. And Nakasone made the point that in the cyber domain, he thinks there needs to be a, quote, longer dwell time for the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who actually go and serve there. And he thinks that's because, you know, the cyber domain is complicated and it takes a long time to train and get soldiers ready for operating in cyberspace. And therefore, they should perhaps stay at the command longer is kind of where he's leading. And that's been something that's brought up, been brought up in the past when it comes to cyber command. So that's one of the things that this uh, study will be looking at is how the services kind of feed forces into cyber command and perhaps how long they stay there once they do. We're talking here with Federal News Network reporter Justin Doubleday. So six years at the helm of Cyber Command and the National Security Agency. General Nakasone has been a busy man. What else has been notable about his tenure there? Yeah, I think, you know, th there's the other side of his uh, quote unquote dual hat leadership, and that's the National Security Agency has also seen some major changes during his tenure, including the reestablishment of a cybersecurity directorate in 2019 to be a little bit more public facing uh, for the NSA, which, of course, is still very secretive, but perhaps less so than they have been in the past. And that cybersecurity directorate has really focused on forging more partnerships with industry and issuing public cybersecurity advisories. 
and, and that's continued over the last several years since it, it's been stood up and really accelerated. Another big thing has been the NSA's workforce. Uh, you know, it's in the middle of some pretty big changes with a lot of its older workforce uh, retiring and uh, members, uh, millennials and members of even Generation Z now making up a much larger chunk of that NSA workforce. Um, Nakasone made the point that the NSA is actually hiring half of its civilian workforce over the next five years. Essentially, a new half of its civilian workforce will be replaced over the next five years. And so what they're looking at is new opportunities, new flexibilities for those younger generations. Perhaps they don't have to serve there for three or four decades straight, but they can uh, move in and out of the NSA more easily. And that's one thing that Nakasone has really put an emphasis on over the last year or so. I don't think you could bring in a notepad big enough to get his full answer on this. But what does Nakasone see as some of the major challenges in cyber going forward? Yeah, well, you know, one of them is workforce, which we've covered a lot about both on the cybercom side and the NSA side. Uh, another, unsurprisingly, is China. He he called it the generational challenge of our time uh, when it comes to China and, and the Chinese government and what, what they're doing in cyberspace. Uh, he, he highlighted how the U.S. believes the Chinese government is behind infiltrations into the networks of U.S. critical infrastructure recently, uh, networks like power and water systems. This issue was also highlighted during a hearing that Nakasone appeared at uh, on Wednesday uh, before the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. So this is getting a lot of attention in all quarters. Um, and then the third thing beyond China and workforce that Nakasone mentioned is artificial intelligence. He says the smartphone had been the most disruptive piece of technology in his lifetime so far, but he thinks AI and generative AI will be similar in its uh, disruptiveness. Yeah, that seems to be where the attention is in the media landscape and in cyber experts themselves. What is the NSA doing around artificial intelligence and generative AI? Yeah, last year it made some waves when it announced it was establishing an AI security center. Uh, and that's specifically focused uh, on on working with companies that work on AI that that you know develop these models, uh, and it works with them to essentially protect their intellectual property from foreign theft. Nakasone says one thing he's observed is that U.S. adversaries and competitor nations are all using U.S.-based AI products. So working with U.S. partners who, who uh, companies who who work on those products uh, and, and in order to identify perhaps cyber attacks that would attempt to steal that intellectual property is a major focus of the NSA's security center. And that's something that uh, I'm sure will be continue to be a major emphasis in, in the future as Nakasone steps down. I should mention uh, it's a familiar face for NSA and Cybercom folks, at least who are replacing him, who is replacing him. Uh, Lieutenant General Timothy Hawk, he's an Air Force general, has been confirmed uh, by the Senate to replace Nakasone. And that change of ceremony, change of command ceremony, excuse me, is happening this week. Yeah. Is that going to be the move going forward that whoever leads the NSA is also going to have to head up Cyber Command just because their missions are so intertwined? Well, this is uh, this probably deserves its own segment. The uh, the dual hat relationship. Uh, with the same person leading both the NSA and Cybercom has been uh, a topic of a lot of uh, think tank pieces and debate in Congress. But several years ago, 
you know, both DOD leaders, Nakasone included in Congress, seem to at least close it for the near term by saying they think that it should continue uh, to be a dual hat relationship and that they should not split up the leadership of those organizations. And so with Lieutenant General Timothy Hawk, soon to be four star general, Lieutenant uh, General Timothy Hawk, uh, that's going to continue. He's going to continue to lead both the NSA and Cybercom. All right. We'll hold you to that and look forward to a future segment on that topic. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you, as always. All right. Thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking. 
that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people 
have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. 
This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.